right, Trinity Church, how you doing? Yeah? Good to see you today. I want to apologize for our 930 service. All their hot air took away all our cold air. So I know we're doing a lot of this. Please keep it up. Okay, I don't want anyone passing out today. So we're trying to, all of our air is on, believe it or not. It's just taking a little while to cool us down. So again, those uh, rotten people from the 930 service, they were breathing too much. And that's what I, so it's actually one way to conserve air. Just stop breathing. No, don't do that. Don't do that. That's when you will pass out and that will go bad. But anyways, we're really glad you're here today. It's a privilege to get to be here with you on the second Sunday of a brand new series that we started last week. Hilke did a great job kicking off a series we're calling Faith Steps. And excited to jump in with that with you today. I just love, today's got a lot of cool pieces, but one of my favorites is having some next generation leaders. So we had David and Elise Strum up here. Would you thank them? They did such a great job today. Our our whole worship team did awesome, but what a cool thing to be led by our young adults. And today I'm going to actually get to team teach with my son Jackson. And so we just kind of get some cool ideas of just some leaders that God is raising up to continue to just move forward and help our church, help the church, Big C Church, continue to be what God intended it to be in this world. So I get real excited about that. So if you have a worship folder with you, would you take out our notes? You have uh, some message notes there with you. If you want to grab those out and have those ready to go. If you have a Bible today, you can open that up to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're in the Old Testament, the former covenant. 1 Samuel 16. If you don't know where 1 Samuel is, it comes right before 2 Samuel. I know. Super, super helpful today. I know. Uh, But uh, find your way there. 1 Samuel 16 is where we'll be. What we're doing this summer is this. We're we're looking at literally uh, a standalone narrative every week. And last week, Hilke did a great job talking about Abraham and all these different tests that he had before him and ultimately passing this great test of trusting God with his son. Today, we're going to look at another character. And each of the weeks together during this summer series, we're going to look at a new narrative. So on the one hand, if you miss a week because you're on vacation or whatnot, it, it won't be like you've missed something in the store and you don't know where we're at. But on the other hand, what all of these narratives have in common is they're under the umbrella of people who had a growing confidence in God. Now, they didn't have a growing confidence in God because everything was just normal, everyday, comfy, cozy life. They had a growing confidence in God because they kept standing at forks in the road. Or they kept standing, look at some obstacle, some hurdle in front of them, and believing God for what he said about that and putting one foot in front of the next. Each of these narratives have that in common, and it's the idea of faith. And I love this definition of faith that we're using this summer, a growing confidence in God. And that's truly what that is. So as you join us today, we're going to look at another narrative in that place. Here's the interesting thing when you think about it, other people's faith, right? Other people that you know that you watch that really have this this, uh, evidentiary way of following Jesus. It's not just theory for them. They're putting one foot in front of the next. They're facing obstacles that when you hear that story, you go, dear Lord, I don't know what I would do if I was in their shoes. And you really admire other people's confidence in God. Here's what I want you to hear today. Your faith is never going to grow merely by their stories. I think they can be a help. That's why the narratives we're going to be looking at are truly examples to us of people who said, God, I believe you for what I'm facing, and I'm going to grow in my confidence by putting a step forward. 
But for us today, as we hear that, I want you to know, I believe every person, David said it to everyone in this room to some degree, is facing something that they're wondering if they can trust God about. And what I want to say is this, that thing, that thing that you're facing today, I want to encourage you, don't hear another biblical narrative today and say, that was interesting. Don't hear how God worked in someone else's life in a way that might very well well parallel what you're facing today and just go, wow, that's neat for them. I'm not sure that that's the same God who's going to show up for me. Today, instead, say this. If I really want to have a growing confidence in God, then I need to trust him for the very next thing, the very thing I'm facing today. Not theoretically in the future when you face something challenging for the thing you're staring at today. Here's a blank I want you to fill in in your notes as we kind of kick off our time and, and kind of begin to get our feet underneath us with this series. A growing confidence in God for his power to provide and protect doesn't come by passively wanting it, but by actively engaging it. One small step of faith at a time. And that's what we're going to look at throughout this series are people who trusted God, put one foot forward, and saw him be faithful to them. Now, normally in our, uh, just kind of our, our breakdown of our message, we'll have what we'll finish with and even start with is what I call a now what statement. It's not just a big idea, but it's something I'm supposed to do now out of this thought that we've had together today. In this series, we're going to change that and call it a next step. It seems very appropriate for the series title that we're in. Look at our next step for today. By trusting that God is in control of your present, you grow in confidence about his hold on your future. By trusting that God is in control of your present, the right now place where you sit today, you grow in confidence about his hold on your future. And that's what we're going to look at. So number one in your notes today, your future is rarely on time. Your future is rarely on time. And isn't that the case? Isn't it as though we have these expectations, we have these things that we want to happen now, and they're elusive. They don't happen on time. You you actually are often, if anything, you're surprised when things go according to the plan that you had, because often God's timetable is completely different than your own. And many of us have just kind of learned to accept that and go, not even necessarily keep getting mad about it, but just go, God, I just keep getting it wrong. I'm going to trust you for it. But maybe today you're hearing like, I'm having a real hard time trusting God for that. I get impatient. I get stressed. I even sometimes lose control. And if you do, hopefully you don't do it as bad as this guy. Take a look. All right. So what not to do. Okay. When you're impatient, you want something to happen right on time, uh, what not to. I always love that part of the video when he goes and grabs his computer monitor and the lady's like, ah! like a bomb's going off in the building, you know. And, uh, but, but as we do that, today we're going to look at is a, a, a character in the Bible narrative that I think if anyone might have had good reason to be frustrated and impatient about how long God was taking to deliver what he'd promised to him, it's the character of David. And David has a lot of wonderful things about his life and what we can learn from him. But it's this one that I think is often elusive. We don't see it. It doesn't come right off the page. And therefore, we miss something very, very powerful for what we're looking at today. So your Bibles are open to 1 Samuel 16. Look at verse 10. Let me set up the context. The context is, is that Saul is king of Israel. 
Saul is the very first king that's ever been appointed by a guy named Samuel as, as led by God to make king of Israel. And Saul, in his leadership of Israel, he has blown it. Blown it huge twice in such ways of total defilement against what God said. Basically, Samuel comes to him and says, God has ripped the kingdom out of your hand and given it to one who is better. So Saul's actually heard these words from the prophet, the man of God, Samuel. He's heard him say, your time is done and God's going to give the kingdom to someone else. So that sets the tone of this narrative that we're looking at today. Now, Samuel's kind of gone into hiding. The Bible says they would never see each other again in their lifetimes after that point, Saul and Samuel. And Samuel goes into hiding because he's now in the king's wanted list. God comes to Samuel, the prophet. Samuel is this amazing man of God. I love one of the phrases about Samuel is that every word he spoke, none of his words fell to the ground. What a powerful thing to think about that kind of character and that kind of reputation before God and men. This is who Samuel is, and God says to him, I'm ready for you to go and anoint the next king of Israel. Now, as we talk about this today, what's going to get very easy for us is to kind of check out and go, Todd, this story literally happened thousands of years ago. I can't relate. I don't know why it matters. Watch this just for a second. God says to Samuel, go anoint a king while there's already a king on the throne. In some places, they call that treason. Okay, Saul is established, even though he has heard these words from Samuel, no one else thinks anything's different. He's the reigning king. Why would you ever anoint someone else in his place? But that's the word that came to Samuel. So Samuel takes off, and he goes to Jesse's house. That's where we pick it up. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 10. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Samuel called him, get all your sons, have them come before me. Seven passed four, but Samuel said, said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Like He's like, God sent me here to anoint someone today, but all the sons have passed in front. There's no one here. What am I missing? Is there anyone else that could possibly be your son? He says, well, there is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. So let's track this just for a second. Watch the different, get in the sandals of these characters. So here's what's going on in this scenario. Samuel's come, the man of God. Everyone knows who Samuel is. He's very well respected. Come to Jesse's house and he's thinking something big's going down. He says, get all your sons. He says, sure, here's seven of them. They all pass before him. He says, none of these. Here's the point. David, in this narrative, this is the first time we actually meet David in the biblical account. David is so low on the totem pole that when Samuel tells Jesse, bring all your sons, he doesn't even think about him. He's a kid. He's a punk out in the fields. We would do the math biblically and realize he's about 15 years old. David Sepulveda on the drums today, a month shy of 15. So God comes to David Sepulveda. Okay? He's that young. And David's awesome, by the way. Great drummer, a great young man. But I go, yeah. But I go, think of that scenario. That's the age that Samuel comes. And he says, where's your other? I, don't, I guess there's that kid in the field. Really? You want to talk to him? And so that's the scenario. That's how low Jesse thought would be the value of even having that son come to the house. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. I love that when you think about the urgency um, go, go get a servant and go get him. Can you just imagine that servant right through the fields? Because I'm sure David tending sheep was not right out in the backyard. 
He was out somewhere far away. And the urgency is nobody sits down in this house till he's here in front of me. Servant's like, hurry, run fast. So servant's out there. Oh, finally finds, catches up to him. Over there, to that house. Over, over there. Now, go. Just go. You know? So David kind of gathers himself, makes his way back to the house. And as he gets there, comes in. I'm sure he must have been thinking as he was also running to the house, I'm in big trouble. Nobody runs after me like that to get me back into the house. Comes into the house, and then the next thing that we see begins to happen. So he sent for David and had him brought in. He was glowing with health. That's because he was sweating. He was so hot from running in. And he had him, or, um, and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise. Says this to Samuel, rise and anoint him. This is the one. This is the king. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, watch, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Here's what I want you to see throughout this series. I want you to see the value of finding your place in this story. Hopefully none of us can relate to a guy like Saul today. A guy that God had exalted, but because he put his own future in his own hands, God had taken that right away. Maybe the role of Samuel. You kind of go, you know, God, I don't know what you're having me do. This is very confusing. Why are we anointing a king when one's already on the throne? And then of all places, you bring me to this house, and then you bring me to this kid? But okay. What about getting in the shoes of Jesse? That son? What about getting into David's shoes today? I'm literally treated like a servant in my own home. Not even thought of when Samuel said, bring all the boys. And now all of a sudden, I'm taking a knee and the prophet of God. There's no one in Israel like Samuel. The prophet of God is pouring oil onto my head that is dripping onto my shoulders. I've been anointed the next king of Israel. These are the different scenarios going on in this story. And, and you might not relate to anyone in particular specifically. Like, I don't know the last time you were anointed king. But what you can do is kind of process, God, why me and why now? What you can do is process, God, why him? What you can do is process, God, this doesn't really look all that clear to me, but I'm going to move forward anyway. I want us in this series to get into their sandals because we can relate to biblical narratives like you probably never really thought about but they're so powerful for us today. Let's pick up the, the story now. David, about 15 years old. Let's consider what his expectations look like. What are David's expectations as a result of this scene? Well, first off, specifically, his expectation is that he'll be the next king of Israel. He'll be the next king of Israel, and he'll receive all that comes with that. Now, you might ask the question, well, are, is this an appropriate expectation? Like, is, what is he basing that on? Well, he's basing it on the fact that the man of God, the prophet Samuel, came and anointed him in front of his family. They're witnesses to see what had happened. This is an appropriate expectation because of what God has done to reveal, this is my plan for you. Very appropriate. What does he need to do next as a result of being anointed king? Well, he's not given a specific task. He's not given a specific assignment. He's not given a specific timeline. So now the only question is, what do I do? I've been anointed king. Well, he's going to be obedient to the spirit of God that now dwells within him. That's his next step for now in the middle of this. 
As we walk through that sequence of questions, what was the expectation? Is it justified? Is it appropriate to have that expectation? And what does he do now? Interestingly enough, you were probably putting one of your or one or more of your expectations through the same grid. What is the expectation that I have right now? Is it something that I should have? Is it appropriate? And third, is it, what should I do next about it? And I would want you to do that. That's the grid I want you to use in considering some of the things you have. Here's the thing. Across this room, every single person in this room today has unmet expectations. And in saying that, can I simply tell you something? Welcome to the fallen human race. Welcome to the fallen planet that we live on. That's why we have unmet expectations. And and one thing for us to grab on today, you're like, Todd, you're not telling me anything new. I already knew that when I walked in the door. But let me track with something. Here's one of the epidemic problems that I think we, the, the followers of Jesus, face is that in our daily lives, we keep getting into this grind and we keep looking at unmet expectations that seem to line the pavement in front of us. But what we fail to do is we fail to raise our gaze and consider that in heaven, there will be zero unmet expectations. That's what heaven is for. And the problem is is that we tend to live in a very heavenless following of Jesus. I don't know why this is, and by the way, I'm not being preachy, I'm talking to myself. I can very easily get in the mode of everything that I'm about is just what I'm looking down at. Paul said, if you live that way, you're the most of all people. You're the most pitied of people because our gaze is up. Our hope is in heaven. That's where God makes everything new. And so if you're struggling today with, Todd, I have so many unmet expectations, my simple question to put out to you, how often, how consistently do you remind yourself and encourage yourself with the great news of what God has in store for you in heaven? I think we were meant to do that. I think that is part of the daily responsibility of us the followers of Jesus, of us as church leadership at Trinity Church to keep putting this in front of us. This is not our home. God has something amazing in store. Now, this is what I want us to do. If that's true, if we have that, that reality of heaven that we just simply don't consider enough, let's ask a couple questions. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of one dominant, unmet expectation that you have. Some of you are like, Todd, I have a catalog. I get it. But, but just identify one. What is one significant unmet expectation that you have as you sit where you sit today? As you identify that, as it kind of bubbles to the top over anything else, just, just now focus on that just for a second. Let me use the same sequence of questions we just used. Number one, you've already done the first part. You've identified the expectation. Number two, ask this question. Is that expectation appropriate? Now, here's what I mean. When I say appropriate, there are a lot of unmet expectations in this room. And I'm going to say the overwhelming majority of them are not sinful in and of themselves. It's not a sinful thing to desire deeply that your children follow Jesus, and yet they don't yet. It's not a sinful thing to want to be more financially independent and not dependent on other people. It's not a sinful thing to want to be married. These are not sinful things, but 
What happens when we take an expectation, we've just named three of them, you have your own, and then we do this. Is that expectation appropriate? Meaning, has God said, this is your future? God said it to David, knee bent, head flowing over with oil dripping down on him. God made it clear, you're the next king. I think what we do often is we say, God, I have an expectation that is so core, that is so deep. I feel it that strongly as though you promised me something when in fact he has not. We've kind of made God responsible for things he never promised to us. And then we get angry when he doesn't deliver. Consider this today. You have unmet expectations. We already said that. Everyone in the room does. Is your unmet expectation turning the corner into bitterness? Turning the corner into frustration? Turning the corner into anger? Because God hasn't delivered on what you've told him he needs to do for you. Now, you'd never put it in those clear words, but if you stop and think about it, if God hasn't made that overtly clear, then that's kind of what you're doing. Look in your notes. This is a big point for us to walk away with today. Don't do this to God. Don't make God accountable for something that he didn't promise you. Don't make God accountable for something he didn't promise you. It doesn't mean you don't pray about it. It doesn't mean you don't cry out to him about it. It doesn't mean you don't wait on him, but don't hold him accountable for something he didn't promise you. And what if you're here today and you're saying, Todd, that's not the issue. I really have a situation. I mean, I didn't kneel and, and become anointed king, but I have this sense, this revelation, this sense from God, even just looking in the clear presence of Scripture, that God has promised me something and I'm still waiting for it. Well, if that's your case, great news. Jackson has something to share about that. Would you welcome him up today? Good morning, Trinity Church. It is an honor to be with you as always, and I appreciate the opportunity to get to hang out with you guys for the weekend. Um, I, I mean, my, my dad nailed it right on the head. Uh, waiting is relevant to all of us. I mean, if, you, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, you know, maybe that's not, doesn't feel the most relevant to you in this moment, I mean, think about it at the bare minimum the thing that you wait for most is something that we all share. We wait to be face-to-face -face with our Creator and to be one with Him and, and reunited. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of other things that creep in the way that we're waiting for, too. I mean, for me, this last year, college became something that was less described as a really fun or great experience and became more described as feeling more like a racehorse that's trapped in the cage. And I'm ready to go, but I'm, I'm not there yet. I haven't graduated or gotten my diploma, and it's not time. But I'm passionate about ministry, and I want to get into it, and I'm excited about it. And there are just times that the waiting is agonizing as I feel just trapped and I, I'd imagine that's relevant for all of us in one way or another. And what I was blown away by is I, as I was reading into this passage and I was pulling things out and getting ready for this weekend was just how well David did this process. Because most of the time we look to biblical characters and more often than not, the example is something that we can come away and say, hey, I, I'm going to try my best to not do that. But remarkably enough, David sets an amazing example for us. And I loved what Hilke did last week when he kind of took this spiritual giant of Abraham and he said, he's a little bit closer to us than you would think. 
And I think David's situation is more similar to ours than we would initially give it credit for. So jump into the passage in verse 14 with me as we unpack this, and it kind of becomes a little bit more relevant to our lives. In verse 14, it says this, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit before, uh, from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse uh, and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul, and catch this, and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my servants, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand, so that Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Do you start to see as it unfolds that David's situation is maybe a little bit more relevant to us than we would first think? Think about how absurd this situation is when you start to break it down. In God's eyes, the king of Israel is David. His spirit has left Saul. It is only in man's eyes now that Saul is king. David is the rightful king. And in that moment, he has every right to stage a coup and say, let's take down the kingdom, it's mine. But look at where he is even when the servants from Saul come and find him. He was in the fields earlier when he was an afterthought. And now that he's been anointed before his entire family for them to see, where is he again? In the fields. There is no job or task below David. He is willing to be humbled to anything, even now knowing that he is the king to be. God's presence is upon him, yet he still is humbled to this position of being a servant in his own household. He gets called by the king who's not really the king anymore. And get this, instead of coming to take him over, he enters into the king's service. And what's wrong with this king? I mean, look at his servants. His servants are even saying, bro, you're messed up. We gotta, we gotta figure this out. Let's get somebody to help you out. He is not a king worth serving under. You see, David actually has a pretty bad boss to start with. And he's in a hostile work environment. Look at the David that they described to Saul. They say, Saul, look at this guy. He's a great leader. He's amazing when it comes to military operations, and he's also a musician, and Saul says, that's awesome. He can be minimalized to simply a musician and sit in the corner for me. David's gifts get abused. He's not valued the way he ought to be. He doesn't get to sit in the positions that he ought to sit, and he's even humbled down to the position of entering the service of the king who's not really the king anymore. You see, in this process... David reveals something powerful. 
And, and the first thing that we have to understand, if we're really going to understand this concept, is that when we talk about waiting, waiting implies, the word implies that there is a degree of injustice at hand. You would not call it waiting if you felt as though you had everything you deserved or was appointed for you. Or you were at the status or the place that you feel called to be. You wouldn't call it waiting. You've arrived. There's no need to wait for anything. You're good. But to say that we are waiting for something means that in us, there is a feeling that we are not there yet. And there is also a feeling that we deserve to be there or we're called to be there. And in David's situation, he is called to be king. And imagine the injustice as he enters the service of the current king. And get this, it only gets worse. Eventually, Saul's going to come to fear David so much so that in one night, he's going to try to kill him twice. The injustice just rises and rises. And in our situations in which we find ourselves waiting, we can feel that same degree of injustice. Whether it's just like David and it's at work, and we're waiting for a promotion, we're waiting for something to come, And it just feels like the people that are above us in authority over us have just this injustice about them. Or maybe it's how we feel when we're at home in the context of our family. That we're waiting for something to be right and it just feels as though those above us are being unjust. Or maybe it's just the waiting process. Just the the waiting process of whatever it is that we're waiting for feels like absolute injustice. And look at what David does. It's my first point for you. The key to waiting well is vigorously submitting. Not typically words that you would put together. Because when we think of submitting, often we think of getting steamrolled. You know, I I, I submit to you, so whatever you want, whatever you're going to do, go ahead and do it. I'm good for it. But when you pair it with vigorous, it it adds a new meaning because they seem so opposite, but it's actually an insanely biblical concept. You see this in 1 and 2 Peter as Peter describes the authorities that are above Christians of the day and they are being persecuted and they are losing their families and their own lives. And he is saying, we are called to submit to them because we trust that it is God who put them in authority above us. And then you see it in Jesus' life. As he is called to trial and a measly Pilate stands before him asking him what he has done. And Jesus keeps his mouth silent. God Almighty submitting himself to the powers that be in that moment. See, this vigorous submission had nothing to do with Saul. Did it impact Saul? Absolutely. But David didn't say, I'm going to vigorously submit to this process because Saul is an amazing leader. Saul's other servants, no, he's all messed up. He's not an amazing leader in any way, shape, or form. But instead, it was more about David saying, I trust my God who holds everything, who is almighty, who is above all, who I can trust with my very life. I trust the promises that he has made to me. And catch this, Saul, you cannot rob me of that. There is no robbing of the promises of God because he is faithful and he is mighty. 
And so David says, I do not vigorously submit to Saul or to the system or to the waiting process. I vigorously submit to God, which means throughout the waiting process, he might have had opportunities, and we'll see in a second, he had plenty to stage a coup, to take over the kingdom. But instead he said, I will wait for God to deliver the promises that he has offered for me. And that's the key to waiting well. Now for me, I, I can know, you know, this is how you do something well, but I really struggle with it until I know why I'm doing it. The, the better you get to know me, you'll realize I'm just a purpose person through and through. I want to know what the purpose of something is. And so that kind of brings me to my next point that I want to talk about. is bigger than just, let's wait well. Why all the waiting? That's my next blank for you guys. Uh, why, why are we doing all of this waiting? Why is David doing all of this waiting? Why is this a reality in our lives? And, and when we get into this, I want to be quick to debunk something right off the bat. Because you might be right in the middle of the waiting process right now. And I know for me that when I am in it, and it's all I can see, it feels like a tunnel closing in around me, and generally, I can only see what's right in front of my face in that moment. And what's normally right in front of me is what I feel. And I feel like I'm being punished. I feel like I did something wrong. I have this tendency to feel like there was something that I did or somewhere that I went or somewhere where I failed that has now disqualified me from what I am waiting for or from what I am expecting. And so what I start to do is I start to look backwards and to analyze what did I do wrong, all the while missing the fact that waiting is all about propelling me forward. And I actually begin to elongate the waiting process by analyzing what is wrong with me instead of realizing that God is transforming me to be something. So what I want to make extremely clear to you this morning is that if you find yourself under the blood of Christ, if you get to heaven and all you have to say is Jesus, that's it, that's where I identify myself. If that's where you are right now, catch this, there is absolutely nothing that you could do or could have done that would make you more right with God than you are right now. You are as right in this moment with God as you will ever be in your whole entire existence, even to the point when you stand in front of him face to face, you are as right with him as you will ever be, and nothing can rob us of that. And there is no room in the Christian life for punishment from God Almighty because he took it all out on Jesus on the cross. And there is no more condemnation for us. There is just grace and redemption and restoration. And we do not serve a God that punishes us. Amen? That is not the world that we live in any longer. We are no longer punished, but instead we are disciplined and trained by God Almighty so that he might actually make us look more like him. I often say that I, I, I really don't like it when people give me pictures of themselves for my birthday or something like that. It bothers me because I'm just like, I know what you look like if you're giving me a gift. I don't need a picture of you. It just feels wrong. And, but get, catch this. This is our relationship with God. He loves us so much that he would give us the absolute best that he could possibly offer. And catch this, it's a picture of himself. So he's going to make us look like him in the waiting process. 
And now watch this. Watch what happened to David. You don't have to read all these stories. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase the story for you from here. If you look at the next chapter, the first title right there says David and Goliath. You know how that goes. David shows up, Saul sends him out, and David says, I'm only going out because I know that my God is faithful to deliver Goliath into my hands. And he goes out with his stones, and he slings Goliath, and then he takes Goliath's huge sword and cuts Goliath's own head off with his sword. It's epic. And, and so David conquers Goliath, but catch this. Look at what starts to happen. Is David is no longer just the musician. All he's doing is obeying Saul. What Saul says, David does. And now, all of a sudden, he's beginning to be able to be a leader and use the military strength that he has. And so his gifts start to be used. But then when I look to the next chapter, I see that his esteem with the people begins to rise in chapter 18. Because what starts to happen is David goes off and he fights and they come back. And as they're coming back into the towns, the women of Jerusalem come out and they say, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And I'm going to compare these two things because I think they're two different options that David had. He could have waited or he could have staged a coup. And what do you think his approval ratings would have been if he staged a coup? He was the only one, including his family, who knew that God had chosen him. So if he went and he rebelled and he took over the kingdom, what do you think the people would think of him? They would see him as cruel and harsh. But instead he follows the waiting process and look at his, how he starts to become valued. And in this moment, this is when Saul starts to fear him when these women are singing this song. And that night he tries to kill David twice. And what does David do? Next chapter, he shows up to work the next day. I'm ready. Whatever you need from me, Saul. Saul tries to kill him again and again and again until it gets to the point that David just has to go on the run. Now, David has a group of supporters. They're called his men as as he's traveling around. It's almost like he's got this little army. But get this. This army is not in pursuit of the enemy. They're just fleeing. He's not out to get Saul. Saul keeps trying to get him over and over and over again. And David has every right and opportunity to end it. Leading up to this epic climax, get this. In chapter 24, David's hiding in a cave with his boys. And Saul comes in, and Saul's got to go to the bathroom. Extremely weak moment for Saul. And get this, his men start whispering in his ears. And they say, David, this is the moment. The Lord has promised Saul's life into your hands. Take it. You've got it. You have every right. He's been chasing you and hunting you down. The Lord has promised this, but get this. The Lord never promised Saul's life into David's hands. He just promised the kingdom. And so what does David do? He creeps up. He's getting ready to do it, and he's convicted. And he cuts a corner off of Saul's robe. And get this. He feels so guilty that he would even betray his master who is trying to kill him to the point of cutting his robe, that David comes out of the cave with the corner of Saul's robe, risks his life, and says, I'm sorry I did this. Are you kidding me? Can you imagine in that moment saying, I'm sorry to the person who is hunting you down, all injustice that you could possibly experience in that moment, and he comes and he says, I'm sorry. When I think about this waiting process in David's life, all I think about over and over and over again is Galatians 6, 9, that Paul writes, would we not grow weary of doing 
good. Why is David waiting? It's simple. God is working on him so that he would not grow weary of doing good. So that when David actually takes the throne, he would not just be a king who is patient, but a king who is loving, a king who is kind, a king who pursues justice and loves righteousness, a king who's a man after God's own heart. There is nothing in this that made David that other than the waiting process that he went through. And this is the thing I pointed all back to. Earlier in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel's looking at David's oldest brother, and God responds to Samuel when he thinks that this is the one that the Lord's going to anoint. And in verse 7, the Lord says to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So why did David go through the waiting process? Because the Lord was refining David's heart. That's your last blank. The Lord was working on his heart so that he would be a man after God's own heart. And you might see chapter 24 is this great climax of this waiting period. But to me, this is the greatest piece of the whole story. It comes in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And I'll paraphrase it for you. Second Samuel chapter 9. David finally gets to the throne. Saul is killed in battle. David comes to the throne. One of the first things that he says when he gets to the throne is where are Saul's descendants? This is a frequent question that new kings would ask because the MO was that whoever the descendants were of, of the last king, they would be slaughtered so that no one else would have any right to the throne but David. And so the servants are pretty much anticipating this, and they go out looking. And they go out looking to find one man. One man named Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth is a descendant of Saul who, at a very young age, was dropped and became paralyzed through the process. So in this culture that he's living in, seen as worthless, His only value was that he was a relative of the king, and the king's not even the king anymore. So he has no value to this world or the society that he's living in. David calls for him, brings him into his court. You've got to know at this point, Mephibosheth is getting ready to be slaughtered. But David's waited, so he does not grow weary of doing good. And Mephibosheth, preparing to die, David says, that's not what I'm here for. That's not what I brought you here for. I know that because of the things that Saul did to me, you deserve punishment. But instead, you're never going to want again. David gives him a seat at the king's table, the highest possible honor that you could ever receive, and gives us this beautiful picture of exactly what Jesus Christ did for you and I on the cross. Took us deserving of punishment and said, I know that you deserve this, but instead... I want to bring you to my table. David made Mephibosheth an advisor to the king to sit at his table, to never want again, to never need a thing, to be taken care of all the days for his, the rest of his life, which is exactly what Jesus Christ did for you and I on the cross. And how did David get there? That's not the 15-year-old David you saw anointed as king. That's the David who has been refined by the waiting process. And so you might be in this room 
and you might actually relate a whole lot to Mephibosheth. You might come in and say, man, Jackson, spiritually, I'm, I'm broken. I'm not deserving. I, I lack worth and value, and I lack the ability to change anything about it. And if that's where you're at, the great news for you is that our mighty king, Jesus Christ, died and rose again, spilling his blood so that you might actually sit at his table and join his family. So welcome to his house today here at Trinity Church. We are happy to have you. And if that is the position that you're in, we do this really simply here at Trinity Church. If you want to take that faith step, we go just like this, ABCs. A, to admit, hey, I am broken. I don't have it all together. I fail, I fall apart, I mess up, and I can't really do anything about it. That's where the rest of us are at too. But then B, to believe, to believe that Jesus Christ showed up, living a sacrificial life, dying a sacrificial death, dying, and then raising three, la- three days later again so that you could be freed, redeemed, and live in grace all the days of the rest of your life, and there would be no more condemnation. And see to choose. To choose that in this waiting process, you would pursue him. To look more and more like him. To say, Lord, would you discipline me with waiting so that I would actually become more like you? Would you teach me? Would you train me so that I would look and live like you? And for the rest of us, our next faith step looks a whole lot like how can we wait like David did? How can we say, Lord, I know what position you have in my life. You are high above it all. You are mighty. You are powerful. Nobody can touch the power that you have. You are the name above all names. And I trust you in everything, so much so that in the processes where I am waiting in my life, I will trust you. I will vigorously submit to you with all that I am. There are no other options. I will submit my life, my being, my heart, my soul, my will to you. And I will trust you to fulfill my promises that you have given me, not myself. And if you fall into those two categories, I want to pray for you this morning. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we love you so much. Lord, we thank you for who you are We thank you that you are a mighty God. We get to trust in you. We get to rest in you that you are faithful to us, that you are unfailing. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that when we were broken, when we were messed up, when we didn't know what to do, you showed up. You showed up and you saved us. And you made us whole and you made us right with you. And Lord, For those of us who want to make that decision today, Lord, we pray, I I admit that I've messed up. I believe in you. I choose to follow you. And for the rest of us, Lord, would you teach us to wait well, to trust you in the process, to be patient, to not grow weary of doing good. And Lord, in this process, would you make us look more and more like you as you give us the greatest gift, a picture of yourself in us. Lord, help us. We love you and we thank you, Father of grace and mercy and our mighty God. It's in your name we pray. Amen.